From KCRW, this is Nocturne. Hi, it's Vanessa. I want to let you know that this episode contains disturbing content related to racist violence. The dark stillness of night envelops and cushions us. It draws us into ourselves and close to our loved ones. We let down our guard and become vulnerable as we release our hold on the world around us. Safety can flip on a dime, though. Comfort turns to horror in a heartbeat when the night becomes weaponized, used by bullies to terrorize and control, allowing the cowardly perpetrator to hide in the shadows and evade detection or identification. This is the most ominous embodiment of the night. One of its most salient symbols is that of the burning cross. Sociologist David Cunningham. Cross burnings oftentimes were part of a broader campaign of intimidation and violence against particular targets. It's been 40 years, and now a deep wound is reopened on the heels of the deadly violence in Charlottesville. A local priest with former ties to the KKK revealed his criminal past of burning crosses and sending death threats. Philip and Barbara Butler were newlyweds who just moved into their first house in an all-white neighborhood in Prince George's County. We got a phone call. He told us that there was a cross. I don't know if it was smoking or burning. I don't know which one it was. In our front yard. I came out, it was about six, seven-foot cross. It was no small cross, it was a seven-foot cross. Because, you know, your mind is ticking that someone is against us. What did we do to pin a cross for the now yard? It make you very afraid of what's going on. You're definitely worried about your family, you know. And uh, I can't say that I was mad or I was afraid. All of it was involved. It's something that we had to, from then on, we had to watch where we go, behind, behind us and everything. When the vulnerability inherent in the night is used to threaten and harm, the effects are deep and long-lasting. More from Nocturne in a moment. Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com join. Listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. The history of racism and white supremacy in the United States has many tendrils. One of these has seeds planted in the night. The stories are there, right beneath the surface. Shameful accounts passed down through the generations of stolen safety and terror in the darkness. Sanford Jeems. My mother told an interesting story 
My mother was born in 1927 in Choctaw County, Alabama, when she was probably around nine, 10 years old. She said she remembered that they were all in the house and blacks at the time did not have locks on the doors. People slept on the floor. It was normal. And she said she remembers that she was sleeping on the floor with her cousins and her brother. And she heard a noise outside the door. And these guys were yelling. They were yelling for her grandfather to come out of the house. And she said she didn't know what was going on. But her mother, her grandmother, and her other relatives, they started screaming. They were yelling. And she said they looked out and the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, was in the front yard. And she said that they had on potato sacks over their head. And they actually had a cross burning. And they were carrying torches. And they were yelling for him to come out of the house, which he did not. But then here's the scary part. The Klan actually came into her house. And she said one of the most memorable things she remembered was the men on the shoes, their boots. They had horseshoes strapped to their boots. And she said they were stepping on the kid, they stepped on the floor, and they went into the bedroom drug her grandfather out of bed, drug him out into the front yard of their house, tied him to a tree, and began to whip him. She said she doesn't remember how long it lasted, the beating, but his sons came home, and one of the sons had a pistol, and he shot in the air, and the clan stopped beating, got on their horses, and rode away. Uh, she did say after the episode, her grandfather was never the same. He was not as confident as he used to be, and his spirit had been broken. And she told me the story because she said, you have to remember, you can't always trust white people. They say they're going to be friendly toward you, but sometimes they're not. And she said that, um, yeah, there are some good white people, but you should always watch out. And so how she was impacted for her life, she remained in Alabama, but I think she also uh, just remained somewhat leery and cautious about how far you can trust certain people. Siblings Cheryl and Carlton. My parents moved to upstate New York in 1962 in a small town, very, very white, bought a house in this little neighborhood. And shortly after we moved in, that's when the cross burning happened. There were crosses burned in our yard, tires slashed, windows broken and whatnot. I'm almost positive he didn't go outside because that would have been asking for something. But shortly thereafter, my father bought a gun and a big dog. He was more vigilant in protecting the family. They didn't want us as children to be afraid or traumatized over anything, so they had hid that information from us. But the trauma, the trauma goes on for generations. It was a cautionary tale. Just because people are nice and kind to your face doesn't mean that they're not going to turn around and burn a cross on your yard when you're sleeping. The message was, get out, you're not wanted. 
The Ku Klux Klan didn't begin its practice of burning crosses until 1915, when it was seen in the film Birth of a Nation. The Klan eagerly appropriated the practice and employed it as a method of controlling African Americans and others through intimidation and fear. But cross burning wasn't the start of this weaponizing of the night. Enslavers before the Civil War and then white supremacists incensed with changes after Reconstruction exploited the darkness in their efforts to maintain their notions of racial order. Terror in the night, regardless of what time period it was used, though, was meant to convey the same message by white supremacists. You are not entitled to safety or dignity, and any attempts to step outside the bounds of their racist system will be punished. The men who delivered these messages of terror hid in shadows and behind masks as they preyed upon their victims. They were called the Night Riders, and the harm they inflicted was deep and persistent. They typically attacked in the middle of the night, sometime after midnight, but several hours before dawn. And what the attacks generally entail is sometimes it can be just shooting into people's homes with guns or setting them on fire with people inside of them. Kadata Williams is a professor of history at Wayne State University and an expert on African-Americans' lived experiences of racist violence. Other times, the attacks include armed invasions. So it's very much like what we might consider home invasions today, where you've got armed people who invade your home while you're there with your family. In the time of slavery, the night was used as a weapon of control to keep enslaved people inside isolated and scared. Stories were spread of ghosts and evil spirits, and slave overseers dressed up in costumes then rode past homes on horseback. After the Civil War, white supremacists moved on from invoking the supernatural and used violence and the threat of violence to terrorize and control. Night was fertile ground for their campaign of fear. I think it's, you know, it's strategic. It's also highly effective. Because if they asked some of these men, some of these African-American men, you know, to meet me on this hill at noon, give them a fair chance to defend themselves, then there is a possibility that the person who's participating in night riding activity could be bested or could be killed. They want to take away that possibility. And what you do is you catch them off guard. And what's the best way to catch someone off guard than at home in the middle of the night, in their bed while they're there with their wife and their children and their elderly parents? You know, this isn't the Civil War anymore. It's the post-war period. So there's a presumption of peace. But there's the historian George Rabel, who's got the book that was called, But There Was No Peace. The army stopped clashing. But you've got that conflict that continues over the results of the war in many southern states. The KKK is generally thought to have been founded in May or June of 1866 in Pulaski, Tennessee. This is soon after the Civil War. Pulaski in particular was a place that was beset by a sense of a lack of order after the war. There was a sense that the society as it once existed had had collapsed in a variety of ways. And it was the sort of place that had in a white elite, many of whom, in terms of the males, had fought in the Civil War for the Confederacy, 
who were both interested in kind of reorganizing their own lives, but also reorganizing the political system. And frightening others uh, really blended very clearly into this idea of controlling for the sake of upholding the racial order. David Cunningham is a professor of sociology at Washington State University and author of the book Clansville, USA. So in the context of a post-Civil War politics, this idea of frightening others could be turned into a political act and, and most often could be directed towards newly freed African Americans. Oftentimes, targets would be selected because they were seen as, as overstepping their bounds or moving into the new space created by the reconstructed South. They were people who were seen as needing to be controlled, either directly because of particulars of their lives and their relationships, or indirectly and symbolically. Well, Night Riders were generally white Southerners. Some of them were ex-Confederates, meaning they had served in the Civil War. And they were very frustrated by the destruction of slavery and by African-Americans gaining civil and political rights. And so rather than punching up at the planter elite, rather than punching up at union officials or even northern-based white Republicans who were passing this new legislation and changing the Constitution, what they did was punch down at African-Americans. Many of them were newly freed people or they had been free for a generation or two. They're getting up on their feet, they're voting in elections, they own property or they're trying to purchase property. And what white supremacists do is they decide that they're going to attack them, hold them hostage in their homes, terrorize them in order to strip away the gains that they had made. So I can tell you the story of Abram Colby. Abram Colby is a state lawmaker in Georgia. On October 29th in 1869, Knight Riders visit him in his home. He's there with his mother, his wife, and his daughter. When the men are trying to drag him out of the house, his wife, mother, and daughter all try to intervene, try to physically stop them, try to beg them, beg the men to let Abram go. The men make clear that if they don't stop, they will be injured. And so Abram's wife and his mother, they both stand down. His 10-year-old daughter, Amanda, doesn't. She continues protesting. And one of the men levels his shotgun at her. And she stops. The men, they take Abram from the home and they beat him, threatening him. Essentially what they want him to do is leave the community and not serve out his term in office. African-Americans post-slavery were targeted and attacked for just living their lives. Of course, the bigotry and violence were pervasive and woven into almost every aspect of society, from segregation to public lynchings. The attackers used the darkness of night to further their crusade of white supremacy in several ways. The idea of the Ku Klux Klan initially, even before it had really fully formed its political aims, was really about being a secret society quite literally. So oftentimes that meant meeting in secret places or private places, having a very closed membership, you know, a very bounded set of people who knew what they were, why they were doing things, and how they were doing things. And so that often meant this idea of operating under the cover of darkness that could be used figuratively 
but increasingly was used literally. And so the earliest incarnations of moving out into public with costuming, and this could be wearing masks to conceal one's identity, but oftentimes that would be done at night, you know, to kind of add to that layer of secrecy. And to do that at nighttime, especially in the 19th century, where darkness was much more pervasive than we often think of darkness in communities today, was a way to really reinforce the secretive nature of what they were doing, but also to create this mystique about what the Ku Klux Klan actually was and could be. And as the Klan moves in the later 1860s to more coordinated acts of violence and terror, nighttime, of course, became a place where they felt they could heighten the degree to which they could terrorize and frighten people, but also where they could operate with a greater degree of secrecy and impunity. The KKK has had three distinct eras. The first was after the Civil War in 1866, the second around 1915, and the third around the civil rights movement of the 1960s. With each iteration, the tactics have varied, but the tendency to hide in the shadows and use the night as a weapon of fear have remained consistent since the Night Riders. It is the attacked people who give them the label Night Riders because they ride their horses through the countryside in the middle of the night attacking people. This is in the 19th century, so it's not as though they have streetlights for the most part in many of these rural areas. But what we know is that for the attackers to be able to see, they rely on the moon and on torches. Over time, the methods and modes of transportation for night riders changed, but the essence remained the same. So as we move through different eras of the Klan, the idea of night riding are really small bands of Klan terrorists going out into the countryside or into the community to regulate, intimidate, and terrorize their targets in a variety of ways. And so night riding over time becomes a stand-in for thinking about acts of violence typically committed under the cover of darkness. While Knight Riders were often members of the KKK, it wasn't that clear-cut. There was a wider swath of the community engaging in white supremacist thinking and racist violence. Oftentimes, they are just ordinary white Southerners who are frustrated with the changing order, who decide that they're going to take advantage of or adopt a strategy to strip African Americans of the gains they made that had been effective in communities around them. There's a term for these ordinary people who aren't officially part of the KKK, embodied clan. So that's a phrase attributed to the historian Elaine Franz Parsons. And what she discovered in researching the Ku Klux Klan is that there were the quote unquote members of a group as in they got together, they had meetings, they had activities, they discussed sort of, you know, the, the history and their purpose, etc. And then there are other people in the community who've observed their activities. So they may not be a member of an organization, but they see the effectiveness or they believe in the potential effectiveness of doing some of the exact same things that they do. They realize the power of terror. They realize the significance of holding someone hostage, holding, you know, a laborer who is asking for higher wages, holding him hostage with his family in the middle of the night. 
They understand the power that that's going to have over that person. They understand the power of attacking a newly elected African-American lawmaker to stop him from serving out his term of office. So they're not a member of a group, per se, but they understand the power of terror in their community. The power of that terror wasn't just about creating fear in the moment of the attack. It was about undermining how its victims understood their place in the world. What they say is, well, I haven't done anything wrong. I voted. I go to work. I'm taking care of my family. I'm not attacking anyone. I'm doing what, you know, A, I've wanted to do while I was in bondage, B, what the federal government said I should do now that I have my freedom. I'm not doing anything that's offensive that should give anyone reason to attack me. And what they often say, especially when they testify before Congress, is that everyone in the community can attest to the fact that I'm an upright citizen. They had no reason to attack me. Abram Colby, the lawmaker from Georgia, was simply exercising his newfound freedom. He was serving as an elected representative in state government when he was attacked at night in his home. Recall that Abram was beaten and his 10-year-old daughter tried to fight back. And so Abram survives the attack. They all live through the attack. But here's what he says. They broke something inside of me. What we also know is that a lot of the male survivors, the fathers especially, they sort of articulate what we would today associate with guilt or shame in terms of their inability to protect themselves or to protect their family members from harm. There's also, for most survivors, there's the guilt and shame of being attacked in and of itself. That's regardless of what you did. There's the shame that comes with having been attacked, having been attacked in this way, having everyone in the community know what happened to you. The trauma and shame were deepened by the fact that most often, the perpetrators of the attacks went unpunished and continued to live in the same community as their victims. There are barely efforts to bring even known perpetrators to justice from law enforcement in their community. So there is a greater sense of injury and betrayal for a lot of the survivors. So you've got what happened in the attack, you've got the ongoing nature, and you've got the fact that attackers are still running free in the community. There's no interest in bringing any of them to justice. They could attack people again. And so for a lot of people, those are sort of like compounding injuries. This was the case for Patrick and Missouri Tanner in Glen Springs, South Carolina, in 1871. They'd worked hard to create a good life for themselves and their family. And the relentless terror inflicted upon them shattered that life beyond repair. The Tanner family was attacked by Knight Riders three times. The first time, it's his son-in-law and his daughter who are attacked because uh, his son-in-law, William Moss, votes. It's part of a wider attack in the community in which a community elder named Wallace Fowler is killed. But for William, he is kidnapped, he's dragged from his home, and he's whipped. William's wife, Adriana, fears that William can't protect her and their children, so they go to live with Adriana's parents, Patrick and Missouri. The attackers track them down, though. They know that Patrick is armed. 
So they ambush him and they take his guns. Then they come back. And what Patrick tells members of Congress is that he's gone to bed and Adriana and Missouri are up talking at night just like mothers and daughters do. And so they hear a knock at the door and Adriana answers it thinking that it's someone they know. And when she opens the door, that is when she sees the men in black and red masks. And she calls out to her father, but before he can even get out of the bed, they burst into the room, they grab him, and they drag him out of the house. Patrick doesn't give us the other details about what happens. It is possible that both Adriana and or Missouri were physically or sexually assaulted in that attack. But all of the family members survive physically okay. They're roughed up, but no one has suffered the kind of injuries that require medical attention. So in this case, Patrick knew at least one of the attackers. And from that, he can extrapolate who the other men might be. He may have been able to understand who this man was by his voice, by previous interactions with him, by the shape of his body. One of the things we know about a lot of the masks is that they often slip off during attacks. But oftentimes, if it's people you know, you recognize their voices even if their faces are concealed. For Patrick, he feels as though he's in an impossible situation. He knows who attacked him. He knows local authorities have no interest in bringing this man to justice. He wants to tell his story to members of Congress because he believes that maybe the federal government may do more than local authorities will. But at the same time, he doesn't want to do anything to bring any more violence onto his family. He's worried about reprisal. You know, he wants to stay in the community, and he may think and hope that I may be able to hold on to these 43 acres of land if I can just live with what happened, if I don't reveal to outsiders who this person was. The trauma caused by night riding attacks left a myriad of scars, both physical and psychological. And what members of Congress often fail to understand and acknowledge during later hearings was that the effects of attacks went on and on, and they went deep. What we see with night riding attacks is that most perpetrators physically assault their targets in one way or another. They whip them, they beat them, they shoot at them, they stab them, they choke them until they pass out. So a lot of people who survive attacks do so with physical injuries. For some of them, those injuries are disabling as in their bodies are permanently disabled as a result of what happened to them during that attack. That's going to have an impact on their quality of life and their means to take care of themselves. For the psychic and psychological effects, what we have are the, the sort of very real traumatic injuries that come from being held hostage. Patrick Tanner testified to Congress that after the attacks on his family, his wife, Missouri, began to sleep outside of the house to avoid being cornered in another attack, something which was common for survivors. He tells members of Congress that his wife is not doing well. He's really concerned about her well-being, and he's distressed by her state of mind. 
Patrick doesn't give us any of the details about what he's seeing or how she's behaving. He just, you know, he talks about her behavior in a way that alarms him. Patrick says that Missouri will never get over what happened. When he says that he believes that Missouri will never get over what happened, that is a refrain that you hear or that you see throughout the hearings. Most of the people who are attacked use that kind of language, I don't think I'll ever be over it. He never got over it. She never got over it until she died. And for members of Congress, that's kind of hard for them to understand because what they say is, well, nothing happened to you, right? You weren't physically injured. And what Patrick is trying to communicate is that they did hurt his family and that that hurt was ongoing. And that's what many of the survivors want, members of Congress and anyone who listens to their story to know. This horrible thing happened to me but it's also an ongoing sort of disaster. Everything that happened didn't end, or the hurt didn't end that night when the men left. It continued afterwards. The consequences of night riding attacks rippled out beyond physical and emotional trauma. For a lot of attacked people, the attacks are the beginning of the dismantling of the worlds they built after slavery. This is the sort of slow nature of the violence. You know, they lose, they lose the people they were becoming. If we look at Patrick in Missouri, this is, you know, 1871. So it's five years after slavery has been abolished. Patrick is 62 years old. Missouri is 42. And they've got a large family of children. In five years, Patrick has accumulated 43 acres of land they have a net savings of $125, which is $2,340 today. That's more than most Americans have saved today. These are all indications of where his life and his children's life and his wife's life were going. So when you look at what he had managed to accomplish in five years after slavery, you can see that he's on an upward trajectory. The attacks put all of that into question. As was often the case for survivors of attacks, the historical record for Patrick Tanner went cold after he testified to Congress. What ultimately became of the Tanner family is unknown. What we do know is that he's already started to lose some of his wealth, some of his earnings by not being able to take care of his property, by being displaced from his community, and maybe by not having Missouri's help on the farm. And Patrick, at his advanced age, probably can't fathom having to start over from scratch. And so even though Patrick Tanner wasn't physically whipped, the fact that he's fearful of staying in the community because he's worried about being attacked again, he can't maintain his same business affairs, he can't do the same kind of work he did on the farm while he's always looking over his shoulder, worried about being attacked. Most of the people who are attacked lose wealth because of injuries that they sustain during attacks or because they have to flee their homes and communities and their property in order to be safe. 
Some people, they want to stay. They don't feel as though they should have to leave, but they're given this sort of this impossible situation. I can stand on my principle and lose my life or I can pack my family up and we can go. And what you have are these sort of vultures in the community who know that they're trying to sell their property really quickly, who are going to give them pennies on the dollar for land, for crops, etc. The people who attack them often move onto their land and onto their property while they're in the process of fleeing for their lives. You know, so they lose everything and they often have to start over again. That's what we see with Patrick Tanner. Patrick Tanner has 43 acres of land. Yeah, there's a good chance, like from the historical record, he doesn't maintain that land. For many African-American families, one attack in the night altered not just their own lives, but the lives of generations to come. So you think about Patrick and Missouri's children. If they had been able to stay on their land, if they had been able to continue accumulating property, they and their children probably would have done quite well, especially several generations out. One of the things that I often argue is that when you look at wealthy African-Americans who still have their land in, let's say, 1920, I would argue that the difference between them and other people is that they weren't attacked. They were lucky. When we look at attacks like the Klan or night riding strikes after the Civil War, we tend to think of them as discrete events, a beginning and an end. For survivors, there is a sort of slow, attritional nature of the violence. For many people, it's this one night or these two nights that change everything. Clint Smith. Yeah, so my grandfather grew up in Jim Crow, Mississippi. He was born in 1930, and he told me about how the Klan would ride by their house some nights and how his mother would tell him and his siblings to go into the back room and to hide behind the bed and to turn off the lights and not to come out until she said something. But there were times when he said he would sort of sneak away, as young children do. They don't all always listen to their parents and uh, sneak toward a window so he could look outside. And, and he remembers seeing people ride by and, and yell and scream and, uh, and shout all sorts of horrible, terrible epithets toward their home and, and the homes of some of the other people that they lived around. And the memory of those folks riding through their community he said was sort of deeply imprinted on on his psyche for for the rest of his life and and he was able to describe it in such specific detail that made clear that this had left a sort of indelible mark on on his memory and on his brain and and i was just thinking about what it means to be eight years old nine years old ten years old and to to see the clan riding by at night past your house and hear stories about somebody who lived in your tiny town being lynched. This was normal life for, for folks like my grandparents for, for decades. And these sorts of thoughts and these memories exist in the, in the sort of underbelly of your memory and your psyche. I was thinking about what I was like when I was a boy and, and how, how much I valued places and spaces like my own home, how much I valued my home as a space of sanctuary, as a space of security, how much I valued 
being in a neighborhood that I felt like there were people around who, who we trusted and who would take care of me and, and my siblings. But I just couldn't imagine being eight or nine years old and seeing people who you knew hated you, who you knew wished you were dead, who you knew wished you didn't exist, who you knew wished you were not at all a part of the social or cultural fabric of this country, have them ride past your house and, and screaming at you. I just I can't imagine the fear I would have felt. I was just thinking about who, who this child was and how, how that fear shaped the lives of, of entire generations of Black people who, who are carrying the, the trauma, some, some that manifests itself in clear ways and some that is the din of, and, and the sort of background and the white noise of, of their lives. But all of them are carrying this around. If we are not proactively excavating these stories from, from people who've lived through them, we can forget how fragile so many of the things that we have are. We tell the story every year, how we peered from the windows, shades drawn, though nothing really happened, the charred grass now green again. We peered from the windows, shades drawn, at the cross trussed like a Christmas tree, the charred grass still green. Then we darkened our rooms, lit the hurricane lamps. At the cross trussed like a Christmas tree, a few men gathered, white as angels in their gowns. We darkened our rooms and lit hurricane lamps, the wicks trembling in their fonts of oil. It seemed the angels had gathered, white men in their gowns. When they were done, they left quietly. No one came. The wicks trembled all night in their fonts of oil. By morning, the flames had all dimmed. When they were done, the men left quietly. No one came. Nothing really happened. By morning, all the flames had dimmed. We tell the story every year. You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. The poem at the end is called Incident and was written and read by Natasha Trethaway. Thank you to Rebecca Carroll for consulting on this episode. Nick White was our editor. Special thanks to Annalise Parker for early consultation. Nocturne is distributed by KCRW and receives support from KCRW's Independent Producer Project, which is managed by Kristen Lepore. You can find out more about the show and information regarding this episode at our website, nocturnepodcast.org. Till next time, thanks for listening.